Well, today's message, uh, without a doubt, has probably been the most difficult message I've ever done as a pastor. I've prayed more over this message, more over the delivery of it than any other message that I've ever done. Just not not really about the content as much is is to make sure it's delivered with the heart of God and with his grace, because it's something that we have really gotten a bad reputation about uh, in the world today. And I think we should be able to communicate our beliefs in a way that that doesn't make anybody feel judged or anyone feel condemned. And so today we're going to talk about what is our position on the LGBT and and now the letter Q has been added to it recently movement in America. And this is the second most thing that you asked for as a church, because not a lot of churches are talking about this. Not a lot of pastors are talking about what is our stance. And unfortunately, there's kind of two extremes in the body of Christ today on this issue, both are wrong. There's extremes in culture that are wrong. And, and, and what we want to do is really figure out what is our position. And the first thing I want to say is this is not an issue. This is not something that has to be won. This is people who need to be loved. Let us not forget that it's all about people and stop looking at it as something that it's not. And unfortunately, in the world today, you have alcoholics and drunks and adulterers and people addicted to pornography and, 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 and people who have you know, committed crime who feel more welcome in most churches than people who are struggling with their sexual identity. And the truth is many people in the LGBT community look at the church as enemies and look at Christians as enemies. In fact, they did a recent survey, 91 percent, 91, that's, that's a huge number. Of 16 to 29-year-olds in America who do not go to church view the church as anti-homosexual, which is not biblical, but that's how we are viewed. This summer when we did the series on Christian, I gave you the stereotype of the way many people in the world view the church, and it's simply this, judgmental, homophobic, moralists who think they are the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. And what I want to do is help us rebrand ourselves and get rid of this reputation and this stereotype that we've lived with for a very long time because we have not been able to communicate our standard of truth in a way that doesn't make people feel condemned or judged in a way where we can we can live by truth, but in a very loving and grace filled way. So let me give you a couple disclaimers uh, today. I want you to have an open mind about what I'm going to say. Don't don't have preconceived ideas. No matter what side of the fence you stand on this issue, just have an open mind and, and don't kind of just tune me out and have your preconceived ideas about what you think I'm going to say. Also, we're not a very responsive church, but today in particular, I want to make sure nobody responds during this message. I don't want I don't want anyone to amen, anybody to cheer over anything that is said. Because the truth is, there's going to be people sitting here today who see it differently than you, and your vocal response will make them feel judged. It'll make them feel unwelcome or unloved. And I want to make sure no matter what side you're on, if you hear something that kind of strikes a chord with you politically or socially, just keep it to yourself today. And let's just let's just really let God minister to all of us the truth that we need to hear. Because I guarantee no matter where you stand on this issue, God's going to challenge some things in your heart and in your life today. And then lastly, let me just say that, honestly, this is the worst way to deal with this. I I wish to God that I had a chance to sit down in every one of your living rooms and just kind of share this with you one on one and talk this through with you. Dealing with this in in a 35 to 40 minute message is the worst way to deal with this. But it's the forum that God's given me to to use, and so I'm going to use it. But just know that that this is much better dealt with in a one on one conversation. 
I want to start by kind of sharing my experience with the LGBT community and and what what I, I personally uh, experienced growing up from them. I grew up in the religious South. My father, many of you know, was a preacher. When I was 12 years old, my dad abandoned us and he married our babysitter. And so from then on, the church that we went to, we were considered damaged goods. Like I was no longer allowed to hang out with my friends anymore because their parents didn't want their children hanging out with the divorced kids because somehow we were damaged and we were broken and we were now a bad influence because of what my father had done. So what I experienced from the church growing up was rejection. Uh, I, I experienced judgment. I, I, you know, the church condemned me and my family because of what my dad had done. And my dad didn't even live with us. And yet we were condemned by the church. Now, my mom was a single mother. She was trying to raise three kids. And so she relied on our neighbors uh, quite often to take care of us. And our next door neighbor was a lesbian. And I spent a lot of my childhood at her house. She she helped my mom watch us and, and raise us and cared for us. And oftentimes she would have her gay friends over at the house. And so I grew up with these people on a regular basis, was, was, was in her home and, and with her and her gay friends. And all I can say is the only thing I ever felt from them was love and acceptance. I felt rejection from the church. I felt condemned by Christians. And yet the people of the LGBT community, they loved me and they accepted me. The very people who were supposed to show me the love of Christ didn't. And then a community that we love to judge and condemn showed me the love of Christ growing up. And that's my story. And the truth is, as a result of that personal experience, the 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 you want to believe certain things. And, and here's the danger of interpreting Scripture. A lot of people today will interpret the Bible out of their personal experience or out of their feelings as opposed to what does the Bible actually say. We can read into the Bible and we can begin to make the Bible say whatever we want it to say because of what we've experienced or what we've personally been through. And so what I want to do today is, is as we open this, I want to make this very real to you and, and let you understand that we're dealing with people here. Uh, and I was going to share the, the story of Dr. Christopher Yuan, who is probably one of the brightest theologians of our time. Uh, he graduated Bethel Seminary with his doctorate of theology. He's now a professor at Moody Bible Institute, an incredible man, incredible teacher, and grew up in this community. And I want uh, I was going to share his story with you, but I figured it's with modern technology, it's just as well to let him share it with you. So I took this clip uh, from one of his recent messages, and I want you to just hear his story today. So watch this with me. My journey of faith began, um, I mean, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, so we didn't own a Bible, didn't go to church. But my parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values. Um, but I had this secret that I kept hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. Um, in my early 20s, I finally came out of the closet. I um, came out to my parents. I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry. And there, when I told my parents, uh, it was a big crisis. My, actually, my parents were about to get a divorce. Just our whole world was falling apart. And this is kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. So through that crisis, amazingly, my mother comes to faith. And then eventually my father did as well. Well, I kept going in the opposite direction. And, um, my, my mother and father, uh, just, they tried to, reach out to me. I wanted nothing to do with it. I unfortunately got involved in drugs. While in dental school, I began selling drugs. I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But my par uh, but the school eventually expelled me 
just three months away from receiving my doctorate. So from there, I moved to Louis, to, from Louisville to Atlanta, Georgia. And in Atlanta, I kept doing what I knew how to do best, which was sell drugs. And I, I need to kind of put a caveat here. Not all gays and lesbians do drugs and are promiscuous. That's kind of a myth. Some do, some do not. Unfortunately, that's just part of my story, but it just goes to show how God will impact every aspect of your life. So I moved to Atlanta selling drugs. I was supplying drugs. My parents didn't know I was doing drugs or selling drugs, but they knew that I needed to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Because honestly, my biggest sin was not homosexuality. My biggest sin was unbelief. So they tried to reach out to the love of Christ. I wanted nothing to do with it. And I, uh, you know, kept going and just running from them. They would reach out to me and I wanted nothing to do with it. They, they came to visit me one time. I told them to get out. My dad wanted to give me his, his very first Bible before his left, before he left. And as soon as they walked out, I took my dad's Bible and I threw it in the trash can. That's how much I wanted anything to do with God, anything to do with the Bible. And after that visit, it was so obvious to my parents that I was just hopeless. But they committed not to focus upon the hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer words from church, from the Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. And my mom began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would spend hours every morning in her prayer closet, on her knees, interceding on my behalf. She knew that, she knew that it would take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest. They confiscated my money, my drugs, and I was charged with a street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised. Atlanta City Detention Center. So, I just tried calling home, not wanting to make that phone call, as I mentioned, the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But, surprisingly, my mother's first words were, Son, are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not God's anger. It's not God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out His grace and drawing me to Himself through the words of my mother. So... Actually, my mom was happy to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So she hung up that phone. She realized she had to do just as that good old hymn says, count your blessings. 
name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down. She tore off a little piece of adding machine tape and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list of blessings and counting her blessings. And today, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block and passed by this garbage can. And I thought, as I looked at this trash, this is my life. And as I was about to pass by this garbage can, I saw something on top of the trash. I bent over, picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. Took it back to my cell, and I opened up that good book for the first time I read through the entire Gospel of Mark. But honestly, I wasn't thinking this is the answer to all my problems. I was really thinking I've got tons of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't in sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. They handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist. I shuffled into the nurse's office. And I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words, so she wrote something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read H-I-V positive. The days after that were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, much better than ten years to life, but news of my HIV status felt like a death sentence. One night I was laying in my bed, and I looked up at the metal bunk above me, and someone had scribbled something. If you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. At the most hopeless point in my life, God was using the words written by a prophet to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was, he still had a plan for me. I didn't know where this plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual and God was convicting me of the dependencies in my life, the idols that I had in my life, which were many. The most obvious was drugs. But within a few months, God delivered me from the bondage of that addiction. But the last thing that I was holding on to was my sexual identity. So I was reading through the Bible and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. But I also came across those passages that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain and I asked him his opinion on this issue. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book explaining that view. 
So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. From a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against gay sex and relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain. So, I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture, looking for justification for homosexuality, looking for any type of a positive affirmation for a monogamous gay relationship. I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God, His Word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous gay relationship by allowing my attractions to dictate who I was and how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous gay relationship by liberating myself from my attractions and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality shouldn't be the core of who I was. You know, I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. But then I added, so therefore, he doesn't want me to change. But now I realize that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. You see, my identity shouldn't be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my attractions. My identity isn't gay, not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. I used to think that if I were to please this God, I had to become a heterosexual. I needed to become straight. But even if I did, I would still struggle with sin, so that shouldn't be my goal. Besides, God didn't say, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did he say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of anything is holiness. I shouldn't focus upon what I feel. My feelings lead me astray. I shouldn't focus upon my attractions or my desire, even for a relationship. I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of struggles. It's not the absence of temptation. But change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not what I'm struggling with. The ultimate issue is not my temptations or my desires. But the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. I'm going to email uh, the whole church out on Tuesday. If you're not part of our email list, I encourage you to sign up at info at coastlinechurch.org. That's a two-hour a session he did, and at the end, there's an incredible Q&A time. 
uh, where it addresses a lot of questions, and it's, it's just very informative and powerful. So I encourage you to watch that when we send it out uh, this week. If you want to know more and want to really understand it more, it's, it's just very, very powerful. So we get into the message today. I've got a couple thoughts that I want to share with you, but let me first set up the foundation. This is something we dealt with this summer in our Christian series. John, the disciple, says the word, meaning Jesus, became flesh, and in other words, live with us. And it's not just like us today. John very literally meant Jesus became human and hung out with us. Like I spent three years with him. That's how it was human flesh and blood. And he was with us. And we've seen the glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And then John does his best to describe Jesus. Like how did Jesus interact with people? How did he treat people? How did he encounter different situations in life? And he says, the best way that I can describe Jesus is that in every situation, in every encounter with every person he dealt with, he was full, completely full of both grace and truth. He wasn't a balance of grace and truth. He wasn't 50% grace and 50% truth. He was 100% grace and 100% truth in every situation, in every encounter. And that's the problem. Because if you want to look at the way Jesus loved people, he loved people full of grace and full of truth, which meant there were times that it seemed inconsistent. There were times it was confusing. There was times it would get messy. Times it, it, it was felt like it was unfair. Like it would be very hard on sin in one situation and seem to ignore sin in another situation. But the goal is that in every encounter, we are full of grace and truth. And the truth is, in this issue that we're dealing with in America, I think it's going to be the defining moment for the church of our generation, how we respond is it's going to be a little bit messy. It's going to be we're not going to get it right every time. It's going to be confusing because it's got to be full of grace and truth in every situation. John goes on in chapter three, there's a story of Jesus talking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee. In the middle of the story, John gets so excited, does something very unique. John steps out of the story he's telling and kind of blurts out the answer. So this is not Jesus talking to Nicodemus. This is John talking to us in the middle of that story. John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever is every single human being on planet Earth, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then he goes on to a verse that is just as important, but often forgotten. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Can I say, if you've ever felt condemned by the church, if you've ever felt judged by the church, they got the message wrong. That was never the heart of God. Jesus did not come to condemn you or to judge you. In fact, he came to save the world. That was his heart. So I want to give you four thoughts today as we as, as we try to navigate this this messy uh, area where it's very easy to get labeled a bigot by your beliefs and, and, and get labeled for hate by your beliefs. How do we deal with this in a way where people don't feel judged? They don't feel condemned. They don't feel hated. They don't feel like we're bigots because we believe uh, a, a, a standard of truth that God has given us. How do we deal with it? So here's some points. As a Christian, I am commanded to love everyone because everyone is made in the image of God. I am commanded to love everyone. Everyone, every single person was made in the image of God. The truth is there are people in life where you don't like their lifestyle. You don't prefer the way they live. You don't like their behavior. You don't like what they're up to. But can I be honest? That was the truth for that was true for every single one of us that now follow Jesus. Before we followed Jesus, we lived an alternative lifestyle to what God wanted. Our sin was disgusting. 
we have to acknowledge the fact that all of us lived apart from God in a way that God did not approve of, in a way that did not please God. And yet God loved us unconditionally, and that's what brought us to him. But once we came to him, we realized that that we all live lifestyles that that God didn't necessarily like. So the truth is, yes, God loves all people. But do we treat people accordingly? You know, there's two big there's two big, you know, falsehoods on this issue in the world today. There's there's gay reparative therapy. That was those Christian ministries that were trying to make gay people straight. And it was built on false doctrine and bad theology. And then you've got gay Christian theology out there today. It's kind of what Matthew Vines is talking about and how, you know, Paul wasn't condemning, you know, monogamous homosexual relationships. He was condemning lust and lustful relationships. Both extremes are built on the same bad theology. It's a misunderstanding of Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. Genesis 1 says we were all created in the image of God. And so one one side says, well, you weren't made that way. You were made in the image of God. And the other side says, well, if this is the way God made me and I'm made in his image, then this must be okay. Both of them leave out Genesis 3. Both sides are built on the wrong theology. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve messed it up for all of us. And now all of us were born sinners. See, I get so tired of of hearing Christians say, well, you weren't born that way. The truth is they were born that way. And you were born that way. And we were all born that way because every single one of us were born sinners. Now, it may manifest differently in all of us. But all of us were born with a sin nature. All of us were born into a lifestyle that God did not accept and God did not approve of. And that has to be dealt with. Here's the problem. We cannot allow the way we were born to become our identity. That's what Dr. Yuan said. We have to build our identity in Christ, in Christ alone. Because the truth is, there's things that I want to do that if I allowed myself to live according to the way I felt, I wouldn't be your pastor. I would have disqualified myself if I went out every day and just did what I felt like doing. If I live the way that I prefer to live sometimes because my heart is wicked, my heart is evil. If I did what I preferred to do, the reality is I would not be your pastor. I would have disqualified myself a long time ago. So all of us have have things in us that we've got to, to crucify for Christ. So here's the question. How did Jesus respond to people with a different lifestyle? Let me give you two stories of how Jesus responded to people of different lifestyles that I think can teach us a lot. Matthew 9, you've got the story of the tax collector, Matthew, telling the story about how he found Christ. He's sharing his testimony. Now, in the Bible, the thing about tax collectors, they were hated worse than sinners. That's why all of the authors of the Bible, they would say sinners, but then they didn't want to offend the regular sinners by lumping them tax collectors with them. So they would separate the tax collectors like they were worse than regular sinners. And every group of religious people, every generation had this group of people that there were sinners. And then there was that group we just hated worse than the regular sinners. And and that was tax collectors in this time period. So passing along, Jesus saw a man at his work collecting taxes. His name was Matthew. Jesus said, come along with me. Do you realize how much that would have offended the other disciples? I mean, you could imagine the other disciples thinking to themselves, Jesus, do you know what you're doing? You can't invite Matthew to follow us. People are going to think you condone his behavior. People are going to think that you accept his lifestyle. If you allow Matthew to be around us, people are going to misunderstand what we believe. And they're going to they're going to think we're condoning and approving and tolerant of what the way Matthew's living his life. And Jesus is like, do you think your reputation is bad now? Wait till tonight because we're going to a party at his house and he's bringing all of his friends and your reputation is going to be totally destroyed then. 
Matthew stood up and followed him. Later, when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his followers, those are the disciples that, that would have had a real issue being at Matthew's house, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. When the Pharisees, there's always a religious group, saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? I love the way the Message Bible enlightens things. And Jesus overhearing shot back, who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Go figure out what this scripture means. I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. There was another story in John chapter 8 where there was a woman who was caught in adultery and it was guilty of the death penalty in that time period. And so the men of the city brought her out to execute her in a very painful and horrific way by, by basically stoning her, throwing rocks at her till she died. And they brought her to Jesus and said, Jesus, what do you say? They wanted to know if Jesus was going to uphold the law. And Jesus says, fine, let's kill her. Let's execute her. But this is the way we're going to do it. Any of you that have never sinned before, any of you that are innocent of sin, you can throw the first stone. And one by one they left. And then Jesus stood up and he says to this woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, well, then neither do I condemn you. See, I didn't come to judge. I didn't come to condemn. But then he also said, go and sin no more. See, this is. The power of Jesus. Jesus in one moment cannot condemn somebody, but in the very same moment doesn't compromise what he believes. He says, listen, I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to judge you for your for, for the way you live your life. But don't live that way anymore because I don't condemn you because I love you. And that's the power of Jesus. So let me let me give you a couple of truths from that story. First, love first. Don't don't give people truth first they don't need to hear your truth they need to see your love first and let me also say and this is for people on both sides of the fence tolerance doesn't mean that all viewpoints are equally valid it means i respect you even if i disagree with you that's what real tolerance is and i love the way dr yuan says that unconditional love doesn't equal unconditional approval so how do we get back to the place where we love people without violating what we believe or stand for what we believe without being uh, equated as bigots and people of hate? Here's the next point. As a Christian, my source of authority is the Bible. All of you have a source of authority. We all have authority in our life. We all have a governing force that, that directs the way we think, that directs our decisions, directs the way we live our life. For some of you, your authority is your personal feelings. For some of you, your authority is, is your, your preferences. For some of you, it's the government. Some people, they, they're, their governing force of decision-making is what does culture say? What is popular? Well, if this is what culture says and this is what the government says, this must be what is right. As a follower of Jesus, our authority is his word. Like you don't want me to be the authority of your life as the pastor. That's a cult. We have to have we have to have a standard of truth in our life. And as a follower of Jesus, our standard of truth is the Bible. The problem with that is if we hold to the truth of the Bible, it's going to put us at odds with culture many times. Because this word is counterculture. This word is not socially acceptable anymore. There's, in fact, there's passages of the scripture. I'm about to read one that are declared hate speech in certain parts of the world. But as a follower of Jesus, I have to fear the disapproval of God more than I fear the disapproval of man, of culture or of government. 
Our job is to share the truth of God's word in love. How somebody responds to that truth is his or her personal responsibility. Paul predicted this would happen. Paul predicted there would be a generation that would depart from the truth, that would that would try to make up their own meaning for what they think this says. And let me just give you one of those passages with with no commentary, because Paul basically says what he needs to say on his own. Look at this with me. Yet they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what they thought God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise. They instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people, birds, animals and reptiles. And we do that, too. We just call them cars or careers or sports or pop stars. But we all worship idols. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desire. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of their sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, And they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. So let's deal with one of the issues in our culture today. What is marriage? And and, and really, let's ask the question, what is the biblical definition of marriage? Because if our authority as followers of Jesus is his word, then we have to understand not what is the government's definition of marriage, but what is the biblical definition of marriage? And again, we can't hold people who don't follow Jesus to our standard. This is for those of us that follow Jesus. If you if you don't follow Jesus, I can't hold you to the morality that I personally live by as a follower of Jesus. Paul was very clear. We do not judge people outside of the church. What they do with their life is between them and them, not between them and us. What we do with our life is between us and God's word. So we have to answer the question for those of us that follow Jesus. What is our biblical definition of marriage well the foundation for it is in genesis 1 so god created human beings in his own image in the image of god he created them male and female he created them then god blessed them and said be fruitful and multiply now there's only one way to be fruitful and multiply and and basically what that means is have babies and so god says i'm making you this way male and female so that you can be fruitful and multiply. That's the purpose of male and female. Then Genesis 2, he gives us the biblical definition of marriage. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. 
And here's the definition of marriage. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united. That's the biblical word for marriage into one. So the biblical definition of marriage is a man and a woman being united into one. And this is the definition that Jesus affirmed in the New Testament. Matthew 19. Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. So as a follower of Jesus, we have a biblical definition of marriage. That is a man and a woman being united into one. That is our definition of marriage. Now, we're not called to judge anyone else that doesn't follow Jesus. That is just a standard that we personally live by. But the issue in our culture today is how do we deal with same sex marriage? What, what is our approach? How do we handle it? What do we you know, the government now says it's legal. And can I be honest, I'm almost glad that it's finally over so that we can get back to winning people to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that that's what I wanted to happen, but it, 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 it's, it's in one sense, it's good that we can get you know, done with all the fighting and now we can just get back to what we should be doing, which is loving people and winning people to Jesus Christ. But Nonetheless, what do we do? What do you do if you're invited to a same-sex wedding? Well, there's two issues that you're going to deal with if you get invited to a same-sex wedding. The, the two issues are whether or not you love the couple and what you believe. So if you go to the wedding, it's very clear of your love, but it's very unclear about what you believe. If you don't go to the wedding, it becomes very uh clear about what you believe and very unclear whether or not you love them. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is you've got to seek the Holy Spirit in every situation. There is no right or wrong answer on this area. But I I will tell you as a fact, you can go to a wedding without approving of the wedding. We had in-laws all over America do that this weekend. In-laws went to weddings all over America this weekend. They did not approve of. They did not want their daughters marrying that guy or their sons marrying that girl. So you can go to a wedding without approving of the wedding. That's all I'll say on that. And then, you know, somebody else asked the question to me, what would you do if you were the Christian baker that was asked to bake a wedding cake for uh, a same-sex wedding ceremony? We've got the, the couple right now being sued. And I'm not saying, you know, and again, understand my heart. I'm not saying what they did was wrong. What they did was what they felt God lead them to do. And, and in every situation, that's why we have the Holy Spirit. But I sought God over this area and really asked him, God, what... What would I do if I was in that circumstance, if I was a baker and asked to do a cake like that? What would I do? Well, in every situation, I try to approach things with 100 percent grace and 100 percent truth. And again, it's messy. It's confusing. It it can seem unfair. I I know that not everyone's going to like this. I mean, I know at the end of this message, I'm going to have people who say I was too hard. I'm going to have people who say I was too soft. And there'll be a lot of emails coming in this week. I get it. But here's what I really felt the Holy Spirit put on my heart for me personally. What I would do is I would just sit down with a couple and show them grace and truth at the same time. I would say, well, the truth is, I believe in the biblical definition of marriage. I'm not comfortable profiting from this event. But at the very same time, would you allow me to bake the cake for free to bless you? Can I just bake it for free to serve you and and, and be a blessing to you? Because I am called to love you. Like, I never want my love for any human being to be in question. Like, I will not compromise what I believe, but I never want my love for a human being to ever be in question. So I would just say, listen, I don't want to profit from it because of you know what I personally believe, 
but I would love to serve you. And if you'd allow me to bless you, I'd love to bake this cake for you just to be a blessing. I'm not saying if you do the other, it's wrong or you do this. It's, it's right. I'm just saying this is what I really felt the Holy Spirit put on my heart. Let me give you a couple more thoughts. Um, the Bible clearly teaches that all sex outside of God's original design of marriage between a husband and a wife is sinful. Not homosexual activity is sinful. All sexual activity outside of a biblically defined marriage is sin. And, and, and let me go ahead and emphasize something that, that, that I really appreciate what Dr. Yuan says. The goal of Christianity is not to make you a heterosexual. That is not the goal of Christianity. The goal of Christianity is not heterosexuality. The goal of Christianity is not homosexuality. The goal of Christianity is holy sexuality. That is the goal. Holy sexuality. Well, what is holy sexuality? It's sex inside of a biblically defined marriage. Or if you are single, it's celebrating your celibacy. That is holy sexuality. Wherever you're at, that's what the Bible calls us to. Because being straight doesn't help you from sin. I mean, if like the goal is to get, you know, a gay person straight, because somehow if they become straight, they're not going to struggle with sin. Let me attest to the fact being a straight person, I struggle with sin. I mean, I mean, being straight has not helped me overcome sin at all. That's just the reality of it. And so let me also say then same sex attraction is not a sin. It's not a sin to have feelings. It's not a sin to have attractions inside of you. Sin is when you act upon something. Sin is not, you know, having a feeling inside of you. And let me also say for for whoever needs to hear this gay marriage or same sex marriage or marriage equality is not destroying the institution of marriage in our nation. Our sinfulness, especially our heterosexual sinfulness, is what destroyed the institution of marriage in America. You look at the prison system a day. The majority of prisoners today come from fatherless homes. The reason they come from fatherless homes is because of heterosexual sin. So if you want to talk about what's destroying America and why there's so many people in prison, stop looking at homosexuals and look at the heterosexual sin going on in America because we're the ones destroying America far more than anyone in the LGBT community. It's, 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 it's the, 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 the sin at large which is hurting America. Divorce. All of that. That's why Paul says in Hebrews 13, 4, marriage should be honored. He's talking to heterosexual couples here. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral because he knew the the power and how that would damage a culture. And then he goes on to make it clear and he lists kind of all sin, all sin. And, And can I say for a moment that that. Gay sex doesn't even make the top 10 for God as far as sin is concerned. Like like in Proverbs 6, God lists seven things that he hates. Gay sex doesn't even make the list. So why do we have right to rank like this as so much worse than everything else? I mean, what we really need to do is be disgusted by our own sin and forget about being disgusted by everyone. See, it's always easier to be disgusted by somebody's sin that you don't struggle with. To call it an abomination. When's the last time you were acting a little bit prideful and somebody walked up to you and said, you're an abomination to God? Because the reality is pride is the worst sin in Proverbs 6. That's what God hates far more than he hates homosexual activity. So let, 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 let's stop ranking things and start being very clear about Scripture. But Paul kind of lists everything in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit 
the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people, drunkards, abusive, cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you were once like that. Can I be honest? A lot of those things on the list was my life before I found Christ. I was like that. I mean, if you knew my past, there's no way there's anything I've ever done in my life to deserve to be standing in front of you today apart from the grace of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So let me give you two thoughts as we begin to close this message. Simply, we do not compromise our beliefs. We're not going to compromise what we believe. But at the very same time, we're not going to condemn people. We're not going to compromise what we believe but we're also not going to condemn people. I had a, a, a guy come to me a couple of years ago at the end of the service. He came up to the stage and he said, can I ask you? Sure. He goes, I'm gay. Will I be accepted here? And I said, well, let, let's be very honest. Uh, the answer is yes, you're, you're going to be accepted here. But that's really not what you're asking me today. I said, the truth is, I don't know any any church in America that's like fighting gay people at for some religious fanatics and, and, and wackos out there. The reality is most every church I've ever been a part of welcomes all sinners because we are all sinners and they welcome everybody. But I said, what you're really asking me is not whether or not you'll be accepted. Your definition of acceptance is, will I change what I believe to accept you? I said, the reality is you're accepted. You're loved. You'll be welcome here. You can be a part of our church, but you can't ask me to change what I believe because I have a standard of truth cannot violate and he looked at me and said you know what you're absolutely right that's exactly what i was asking i didn't even see myself asking that but that's exactly what i was asking so we've got to learn how to love people where they never feel judged they never feel condemned but at the same time not violate what we believe and so here's the last thing i want to say regardless of your sexual orientation god loves you god loves you god loves you regardless of what you struggle with. And this is not just for people who struggle with same-sex attraction or gender identity issues. This is for all of you. All of you, whether you're addicted to pornography or whether you're, you know, you may not even have sexual struggles. You may have other struggles like pride or money issues or, or greed or, or other areas in your life. But regardless of, of whatever you struggle with, God loves you. He's not condemning you. He's not judging you. And one of the things that Dr. Yuan said that was so very powerful is, is he said what, what was kind of the breaking point for him to abandon his old life and follow Jesus is when he read Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. He said, that's what I didn't want to do. I did not want to deny myself. This was, I, I thought this was who I was. I thought this is how God created me and I didn't want to deny that part of my life but I realized if I was going to be a disciple if I was going to follow Jesus I had to deny myself deny those feelings deny those preferences deny that the, the thing that was inside of me and I had to take up my cross and follow him and the reality is every one of us that have ever made a decision to follow Jesus have had to do that I had to do that the thing that I had to deny was my unforgiveness I did not want to say yes to Jesus because I knew the moment I said yes to Jesus, the first thing Jesus was going to ask me to do was to forgive my father. And I did not want to forget my father. I wanted to hate my father. 
I did not want to forgive him for what he did. And so for years, I rejected Jesus because I was unwilling to deny that area of my life. I did not want to lay it down. And I knew if I was going to follow him, if I was going to really be his disciple, I was going to have to deny myself. And I was going to have to let go of that unforgiveness. And I was going to have to make a decision to pick up my cross and follow him. And all of us have an area. There's something in your life that you're holding on to. That, that one area, you like, God, I'll give you everything else, but, but you're going to have to work around this. You're just going to have to work around this, God, because I can't let this go. This is, it's either, you know, you've made it part of your identity. You've made it part of your being. You, you made it to the point where, like, I, I can do everything, but I cannot let this go. But that's the area you're going to have to let go to be his disciple, to follow him. Whatever it is, it could be a sexual issue. It could be an identity issue. It could be a money issue. It could be a pride issue. It could be abuse. Like, you don't want God to heal you which makes no sense at all to your logical mind, but it's very real to anyone that's ever been abused. Because we allow abuse from our past to become an identity to us. And it's like we're scared to let that go because we feel like we're going to lose ourselves by allowing God to heal that area of deep hurt and deep abuse. Could be unforgiveness, like my issue. But whatever it is, it's time to let it go and follow Him. So, as we leave today, I just, I'm just going to say a closing prayer over all of us. I'm not going to ask anyone to, to respond in this moment. I'm just going to say a closing prayer. Would you just close your eyes with me? Father, in the name of Jesus. Lord, it's messy to love the way you loved. To be people that are full of grace and full of truth. We're never going to make everyone happy. At times, God, we're going to appear confusing. And at times, it's going to seem unfair. And at times, it's going to feel inconsistent. And during those times, we just got to sit back and feel like, you know, we must be getting it right. Like, Lord, I know that there's people here that felt like I was too soft. And there's people here that felt like I was too hard. I know I can't win in this area. But let us be people who are never questioned about our love. They may not like what we believe. They may not like the true standard that we live by, but let them never question whether or not we love them. Let people never feel condemned and never feel judged. As we walk this out, this will be our defining moment in our generation, how we respond to this movement in America. So let us be people who love, who share grace and share truth no condemnation and no judgment in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me? Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next week.